welcome to Anthony Plogue on Music. I'm Tony Plogue, and my guest is noted biographer and composer Jan Swafford. Jan has written four very large books on Mozart, Brahms, Beethoven, and Ives. I've read them all, and they are all fantastic. But don't trust me, reviews from major critics have been rave reviews. Several years ago, I was on a masterclass tour of the East Coast and ended up in Boston, where Jan lived at the time. My friend Ron Kidd, who was a writer and first recommended Jan to me, was with me for that first week of the tour, and so with the idea of It Can't Hurt to Ask, I wrote to Jan saying the two of us were fans and would love to take him out to dinner. To our surprise, he said yes, and we had a fantastic seafood dinner together, full of stories and laughter. In fact, we closed down the restaurant. So this interview is the second installment of It Can't Hurt to Ask, and Jan has graciously said yes. In part one, Jan talks about writing, the importance of revision, and the lives of his biographical subjects. So Jan Swafford, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I have a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about regarding writing biographies and writing music. But first, I'd like to talk about a hobby of yours, which is hiking, and the writing you do about hiking, specifically in the Grand Canyon, because I think it's such beautiful writing. So I wonder if you could read a quote from a journal that you, I guess it was a journal that you kept uh, in a Grand Canyon hike? Uh, no, it was an article I wrote oh, okay. uh, and polished very much um, because, you know, I don't tend to write about the good trips. I tend to write about the disasters. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this was the end of a kind of disastrous trip. Nobody got hurt in this one, um, but it was just, we got up to this place called Horseshoe Mesa then, and we were all exhausted and uh, agreed that it was the most difficult we hiking with all any of us had ever had. And so we were on this mesa, there, there are two arms, and, and we went out to the um, western arm with Norm, who's a friend, of my, a friend of mine, an old hiking partner, and is also a minister. And we sat there and had this extraordinary conversation, and that's what I ended with in this article. So this is the, um, and in this particular spot has the most extraordinary view. It's one of the great views on, on the planet, I, I think. So here it is. Norm and I sat looking at that indescribable site and had the best and most apropos conversation I've ever had in Grand Canyon. It was about nature, the universe, time, and God. Norm is a minister, and I'm an agnostic. But we agreed on more things than not, though we each saw a different panorama. How can you look at this and not feel a divine presence, Norm asked. I know we're looking at the truth, I said, but it's a truth infinitely far beyond our capacity to understand. I can't put any names to it. I can only marvel and take in the lesson that the unimaginable immensity of nature is not the least concerned about our little problems as individuals. It's us that has to be concerned about us. We talked about theology and Greek tragedy. We agreed that we were in the presence of something ultimately incomprehensibly holy. Finally, I was in tears by way of gratitude for this peace and mindfulness after the physically hardest week of my life. And gratitude for the immense privilege of being in a place so completely sublime. Thank you, Theodore Roosevelt and friends and the U.S. government 
and once in a while do something wonderfully right. And I felt gratitude that at 62 I could still do it, that despite everything I'd gotten up every morning of the trip feeling full of energy. Even for an agnostic, these are great blessings. That is such great writing. I, I just love that. And there are passages in your, your books that, to me, are similar in terms of the depth of, of, of writing. So a question about that. Did that just come out in one, like, like Mozart? Did you just write it? Or did you have to do a lot of revisions to get it the way you wanted it? Well, I write fairly fast and revise slowly. The revisions take longer than the drafting most of the time. So the gist of that would have gone down, but then the tinkering starts, and that can go on for any amount of time. Uh, and I don't remember at this point. I remember, I mean, things do pop into your mind. I, I had an experience once when um, I, one of the few times in my life, I was in my late 50s, I think, and I, I set out to climb a mountain, and I just didn't make it. I just didn't have the energy, and I, that's, that had almost never happened before. And I laid down on a rock, and uh, a, a sentence popped into my mind. This happens to writers all the time. And the sentence was, our bit of briefly mobile earth, as a kind of summary of what I was feeling at that point, our bit of briefly mobile earth. But then I started saying, I don't know, I'm not that keen on earth. <laughs> Can I find, how about dirt, briefly mobile dirt? Well, that doesn't really do it very well. I wanted a harder syllable, and so forth. So I started revising, but dirt didn't work either because the associations aren't right. And I used to tell my writing students about this, about the process of revision, you know, that as I would tell them, good writing is rewriting, and, and um, you take something that's bad and make it good. But even if it's good, it can be better. And I'm a great believer in revising. I'm a great believer in cutting. Cutting is one of the best things you can do to writing until you don't have a single word that you don't really need. So, yeah, I'm a fanatical reviser, both as a, a prose writer and a composer. I remember hearing about, we talked about just briefly about Robert Carroll, the great American historian. And I think one of your best friends, you said, is a close friend of his. And reading somewhere that he and his editor some of the times would spend 30 minutes arguing over a semicolon where, where it should, you know, whether it should be a period or, or something like that. And, and he cut, I think, geez, I think he cut something like 500 pages from his first book on Robert Moses, which I think he's going to do a, a new version that has everything in it. So, wow. yeah, I think cutting is probably really important. Well, and the kind of cutting I'm talking about is mainly just words and, and phrases and that kind of thing, because I always feel that with every single word I cut that I don't need, it's like turning the focus lens on a camera. I'm getting closer and closer to what I'm actually saying. Wow, that's a great way of putting it. I never thought of that. And I think I think one of the things that people tell me about my writing, I mean, this is it was news to me when people started <laughs> telling me this, is that it's very clear. And I think cutting is one of the main reasons it's so clear and straightening out, you know, clauses that don't need to be you know, unsnarling phrases. Well, let's go from the sublime to maybe not the ridiculous, but you started out as a trombone player. So we're going to the dark side here. I remember when I first met you, Tony, we talked a lot about this guy. <laughs> and I think we were laughing a lot. Yeah, we were. With a lot of breath. Well, I probably stories. told you my trombone story. I, I'm, I don't think you did, actually. 
Well, I got to the seventh grade, and I had never really accomplished anything notable in my life. <laughs> my grades went all that. Well, that's still pretty early, you know. <laughs> and I got into junior high band as a trombonist, and I was third chair behind a large girl named Donna. <laughs> and this was before fem modern feminism, and I was humiliated by this. And the only, I conceived an ambition, the first ambition I'd ever had in my life, which was in a junior high band auditions the next year to beat Donna. <laughs> and I did. I achieved my first great ambition. I guess I'd practiced hard all summer with Donna on my mind. And meanwhile, I thought that being first trombone in the band would, would bring me a lot of female interest. And by the time I discovered that that was not true, it was too late. I was hooked on music. And you actually, you played still when you were at Harvard. You played with the Harvard Radcliffe Orchestra. Were I you, did for four years. Were you fairly decent? Um, I, I had quit practicing by then. <laughs> so okay. I could still play orchestral music, which usually isn't that hard. And uh -huh. the, the only trouble is once, I was, I was usually either second trombone or assistant principal. And I got a call once. We were doing a concert that had Petrushka on it, among other things. And they said, the first trombonist is sick. You're going to have to play the trombone solos. And at that point, I was so out of shape that I couldn't practice. If I'd, if I'd practiced the solos, <laughs> I would have blown my lip. So uh -huh. um, I had to go and play them cold. And <laughs> how did I've go? never been so scared at a concert in my life. You made it through? I did. It was just an adrenaline job, that's all. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, anyway, so when did you get in? Did you get interested in composition first or, or writing first? Oh, I'm a composer from the beginning. I mean, writing was much, much later, though I was always interested in writing and did a certain amount of writing. But the writing I did in junior and senior high was... Uh, on the one hand, passionate and showed talent. On the other hand, it was just pathetic. But then I just suddenly had this yen to compose. I'd started listening to classical music. Uh, I went to this concert of, in Chattanooga of Bernstein and the Philharmonic, no less, and heard Brahms's first. And the, I just came out of that transformed. That's the night that I became a musician. And uh, after that, I was listening to Brahms and Copeland and and on and on, um, and I just found myself was yearning in the pit of my stomach to write music. That's the best way I can describe it. I, I was just totally involved with music, and um, and I I felt that I wasn't complete in a way until I started writing it. I mean, that was not really conscious, but that's what it was. And you ended up first your first job basically, I think, was teaching public school. Was that correct? Yeah, because it was that or Vietnam. I had a very low draft number. It was the war. And what grade did you teach? I taught music appreciation in grades 7 through 9 for three years. And then I went to teach in a junior-senior high where I was teaching the 7th grade through 12th grade music, chorus. But the, the high school I was at was this, was this remarkably arty high school in Vermont, so I didn't have a band. I had a recorder workshop and a madrigal ensemble. <laughs> Okay. The musical we did one year was the play of Daniel, which is a 14th century liturgical drama in Latin. <laughs> that's not your usual high school. It was a deeply arty school. Oh, boy, yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. And you actually, you, one of the things, how you got started writing was you wrote for high, I guess it was called For Higher History Books, where you would get paid 10 cents a word? 
Yep. I was um, out of a job, out of teaching job. I'd had a, a couple of um, gypsy college teaching jobs after graduate school, and then they ran out. And um, I was about to have to move out of my apartment to nowhere. But meanwhile, I had a couple of friends who, was, who were writers, and they knew I was a reader and kind of literary, and I could quote the first paragraph of Finnegan's Wake and things like that. And a guy in town who was basically looking for somebody to write hack history <laughs> called them looking for names, and they gave me my name, and that's how I learned to be a historian. I wrote a whole series of books under other names. None of them have my name on them. And they, and they got, you said, like they'd be on the bookshelf next to a book that was called Cats, Cats, Cats? Yeah. <laughs> they were, so, they were sold the in Kmart, you know, next to gaily <laughs> illustrated books called Cats or Armaments of the Third Reich and things like that. Yeah. Oh, but they were okay. mostly about war, Civil War, various wars. Uh-huh. Well, when we had dinner a couple of years ago, uh, you were still working on your Mozart book. And you said you were, if you were going to write another biography, you were possibly thinking of writing a biography of William Faulkner. Is that still in your mind? That was in my mind all the way to when I published, when the Mozart came out in December. But actually, no, about six months ago, a two-volume bi biography of Faulkner came out, the first one in many years, and that was the end of that. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to do a biography if there's been a big recent one. And apparently this one's, this one's well-respected. I, I haven't read it, but I gather. It, have you considered doing another uh, music biography? And if absolutely not, I mean, I'm not. <laughs> okay. I'm 74. These things take years. Yeah, uh, they keep me from composing, which is really what I set out to do. And uh, I've done four big composer books, and that's enough, for surely, for anybody. And they yeah, well, certainly. And they're about big what books. the Beethoven's a thousand, the Mozart's eight hundred, the Brahms is seven hundred, and the Ives is six hundred, something like that. So, um, actually, talking about composing and writing, do you do both at the same time when you're writing a book, do you compose also? If I had more discipline or mental energy or whatever it takes, I could do both at the same time, but I can't. Besides which, when I was working on the Beethoven, which was over 12 years, uh, for, a lot, for the last nine years of that, I was teaching one and a half teaching jobs. Wow. Okay. So I was researching and writing a thousand-page book while teaching one and a half jobs, and um, I didn't get any music written. I love the photo on on your website of uh, when you were working on the Beethoven. You've got <laughs> you have some traffic tickets, I think, and lunch is there, and and I mean, <laughs> it makes me feel like maybe I'm not so much of a slob. <laughs> Things get very messy um, when you're working. I I. I heard a talk by a guy who had written a biography of John Cage. It was his first biography, I guess. He asked an experienced biographer what he mainly needed to get to prepare for the biography, and the guy said, a big table. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. And I have a big desk, but as you can see in those things, that there's just stuff surrounding it like a yeah. cockpit. Yeah, yeah, it's very impressive, I must say. Well, partly on the Beethoven, I was still using hard copy for a lot of the material for articles. By the Mozart, I didn't have to do that anymore, though I had a, you know, a book, whole bookcase of Mozart material, but I didn't have to do articles that way. And the Beethoven, since it took so long, you know, I, I took all the articles. These things were sitting in these huge notebooks on the floor that by the time the book was done, they were yellowed and dusty. And like that. 
I've been sitting there for 50 years. Well, when, you, when you're actually working on a book, or let's, let's say composing, we'll take one at a time, working on a book, what is your day like? Are, are you working on it all day long, or can you only spend so much time because of mental energy? Or I... It varies a lot depending on how desperate I am and how late it is. Um, when I was working on the Brahms in my was it my forties or fifties, probably around the, around age fifty. At that point, I was only teaching one job at a time, and I would go to I'd get I'd get up and read until I had to go to school. I'd go to school, teach a class, and then I'd have an hour or two till the next class, and I would go over chapters, re revising them. And then I'd teach another class and another class, and then go home. I'd get home about 3 or 4 o'clock and go to work and have dinner and then come back and go to work, and I did that for six or eight months, and I wouldn't have the energy to do that now, the mental energy. With the Mozart, for a while, I was just spending two or three hours a day. But I realized that it wasn't going to work, so I had to spend five or six hours a day. So I just get up and, and mess around for a while until I can convince myself to get going. Yeah. So I have a, a general question, and I think this came from you, and if it didn't come from you, then we don't need to talk about it. But the rhythm of prose... Does this mean anything to you, the rhythm of prose versus yeah, the rhythm I, of, of I writing? Yeah, I don't. I was talking to, did you see my blog with, um, now I'm blanking on his name, but he was, he was, he liked my stuff and he was talking a lot about the rhythm, my sense of prose rhythm. And yes, I'm extremely aware of it, though not, I'm aware of it without being very methodical about it. But I like to feel that my prose has a certain music. And um, in the revision process, some of the some of the revision has to do with with, with toning up that music. And I, one of the things I like to do in cutting unnecessary words is to cut words that for rhythm sometimes, or sometimes to add words for rhythm. And sometimes I cut something to make a sentence a little more elliptical, though not necessarily harder to understand. So these, these, that's so. Rhythm is one of the issues that come that's there. Clarity, rhythm, color, the colors of words. You know the poetic qualities. In terms of working with students, is that a big problem that students tend to overwrite some of the times, and you need to be? They sometimes <laughs> they didn't for long when I was a teacher. <laughs> okay. Uh, I use the old um, E. B. White book. Um, what oh was right. Called? Um, styles of writing? Style. Is that it? Style. Elements of style. Elements of style, right, right. And one of the first points he makes is his old teacher would constantly pound on the idea of omit needless words. And that was one of my first lessons to my students. Um, but they changed over time. They got, they got more... When I, I've taught writing for 25 years at Tufts. And... Um, the students got better. Tuff's reputation was kind of going up the whole time. And I got students eventually who were writing very astute sentences. And their punctuation, their mechanics was 
surprisingly good, but they had nothing to say because they'd never been asked to say anything. They'd just been, you know, taught this is a proper sentence and this is how you punctuate. And they, you know, I used to say you punctuate better than you write because, um, you know, I, I'd always have an assignment, which was, you know, what's called a think piece. You have to think about something and put down your opinion. And, you know, seven, a decade before when the students weren't as good writers to start with, they were much more ready to express opinions. Whereas when students started being trained, uh, taught for testing, they were not trained to think, and they were almost helpless when asked to think about something and express an opinion. Hmm. Do you think that could be similar to players? I'm thinking of brass players now main, mainly because that's what I know, that maybe 30 or 40 years ago, in general, the level of brass playing was not nearly as high as it is today. I didn't know that, actually. Yeah, I think I think that's true. That's a hmm. general statement, of course, but I think the playing today is overall the level is extremely high. But I've heard some people say that there's not as much individuality or it's much more about technique now than about music or expression. Do you think that could well, be possible? Wasn't it always the complaint of European musicians that American orchestras are technically spectacular, but they're not as... Yeah. But they're a bit more distant. They're not as connected to the music. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's entirely possible. I remember talking once to Ian Bosfield, the Trump trombone player, um, and he played, I think, for maybe 16 years with the London uh, Symphony Orchestra as principal trombone, I think 17 years with the Vienna Philharmonic as principal wow. trombone. And he's American? No, um, he's English. I think he's English. Oh, wow. And he said in London, which would be the same as the United States, he said a dotted eighth and sixteenth was a dotted eighth and sixteenth. In Vienna, it would be a dotted eighth and fifteenth or dotted eighth and seventeenth, <laughs> depending on the context of, of the piece. You know, that... That's... that I love that stuff. That's marvelous. Yeah, yeah, that we tend to be very, very exact. So, well, anyway, um, so I'd like to go to your books and, and ask some questions about your books. And, and I want to pin you down on one thing just to have you explain it a little bit more. When we had dinner a couple of years ago, which was such a great dinner, you were writing the Mozart book and you said you thought it was going to get ravaged by the critics because you were going to say that Mozart was essentially a happy guy. And you were wrong because the critics loved that aspect of the book, at least from what I've read. It was a great surprise to me. Because, you know, I'd just, I'd just spent all those years with Beethoven, who was just such a, a wonderfully screwed up person in some ways. <laughs> at his, and he had these tragic elements in his life and his personality and his health. And, his, um, and there's just so much to write about. You know, that's great stuff for a writer. And Mozart didn't have any of that. Um, he had problems with dad, but a lot of people have trouble with dad. <laughs> yeah. He had some money troubles in a while, but not, they were not nearly as bad as history remembered them. Um, uh, and, you know, all the drama that people were familiar with in Mozart's life from earlier biographies and from Amadeus, the, the movie and the play, this was not true. Um, almost none of it was true. And, and I just thought that afraid, I was afraid the book was going to be dull. And as I say in the introduction, who wants to write about, who wants to read about a happy man? And that was a serious, it, it sounds, it sounded like a joke at the introduction, but it was really quite serious. Yeah, but, but let me, let me push you on that and see what you think. The politics, it seems to me from what I read in the book, the politics in Mozart's day were even worse than they are today. 
in terms of the p- competition and, and backstabbing. You mean musical politics. M- musical mm. politics, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, Mozart lost four children early on who who died. That, to me, that, I mean, he must have been an incredibly happy psychology, have had a, had a happy psychology to weather well, all of that. Well, my answer to that, a critic brought that up at some point, saying, how can I say Mozart was a happy man? He lost all these children. Well, they were sad about losing children, but that was completely normal in those days. Everybody lost children. Half, I mean, the average, I think, was half losing half your children. Wow. I, parents, I couldn't take that. I think had seven. I think his mother had, how many, five, seven children? No, I think, uh, I'm forgetting now, it was at least five and three died. And again, I, I think the first one was probably the hardest, but after that, you just look around and you realize that's what it is, that, that certain number of your kids are going to die and there's nothing you can do about it. So Boy, it's um, a different life. It's a different life, and you're much closer to death in general in those days than we are now. Death was not put away. People died at home, and you saw it. You watched it. You watched your parents die. You watched your siblings die, your children die, and um, that was just a normal part of life. And I, they grieved, but I don't think it was something that tragically shaped their life in any way. Well, here's a th- hypothetical for you, uh, and I'm not sure if you want to go down this road, but we'll try it, and, and we'll see how you feel about this. So you've written about um, uh, Brahms, well, first, in terms of uh, chronological order, Mozart, Brahms, Beethoven, sorry, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, and then Ives. If they were all sitting at a table, if you were having dinner with all four of them, <laughs> uh, what would you ask the table Generally, is a general question, and what would you ask each specific composer if you had that chance today? Well, I love the question. It's wild, but really? I don't know okay. if I have a good answer. <laughs> I was worried it was going to be a really stupid question. No, I think it's a great question, but so far, well, we have time, so let me think about it. I mean, one answer is I might just let him talk. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, then, then let me ask this. Who would dominate the conversation? Probably Beethoven, just because he probably had the biggest ego of any of them. Yeah, okay. But, I mean, Ives would be talking about how much he owed Beethoven, and Beethoven would be talking about how much he owed Mozart, if they were in a good mood. And um, uh, Brahms would be talking about how, would be abjectly kowtowing to Mozart and Beethoven and you know he once said we're we're insects compared to these gods mm-hmm. and he would have been he would be in the presence of his gods and I don't know if he'd even be able to talk <laughs> but we have okay. a perfectly robust ego too but um I I still don't know what I would ask those particular four because they're such different people I mean one of the things about I've learned in dealing with Music, but as a biographer, and also remember I've written two kind of introductory books where I'm dealing with a lot of composers, is that there's no pattern. Um, there's no pattern for genius. Of, of the, of, I've said this and written this many times. Of the three arguably greatest geniuses in Western music, Mozart, Beethoven, and Bach, are three completely different kinds of composers. Bach was, was considered old-fashioned in his time. Mozart was very au courant, very much of his time, and everybody considered Beethoven a revolutionary, though I don't think he considered himself that. I know he didn't, but everybody else did. And what that is, 
made very clear to me, though in a way I knew it already, was that there is no pattern, you know. I mean, the, modernism was so obsessed with this idea that innovation is what it's all about, and all great artists are misfits and revolutionaries. And it's, it's a bunch of baloney. It has nothing to do with it. You can be very conservative and be a great genius. Yeah, absolutely. And you can be a total radical and be a great genius and everything in between. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've heard of some total radicals who were terrible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be, Well, the trouble is a lot of people thought being radical meant they were genius. Yeah, exactly. But that's, that's, um, that was an unfortunate thing. Let me bring up a subject here, which is interesting and sort of related to this. There's a famous book you may know about called The, Diction the uh, Encyclopedia of Musical Invective by um, uh, Nicholas Slonimsky. Oh, I know the name. I have not read that book. but It's a compendium of bad reviews of, from about four centuries <laughs> okay, of composers. Uh -huh. And this book was a great success. It's been in print probably 50 years, but it gives entirely the wrong impression. What everybody thought, including composers, is that great composers never got anything but bad reviews. And that's not remotely true. I mean, great composers mostly got very good reviews. <laughs> Uh, there are always people who don't like your stuff, and if you're if you're a genuine revolutionary like Wagner, there are people who really loathe and detest your stuff. Uh, but that also had something to do with Wagner's personality. Um, but the idea, but I think composers began to look at rejection as a badge of honor, and that meant that they were good in the long run, which would only be understood after their death. And Slonimsky in that book says that it takes 20 years for a, a, an innovative work to sink in. Baloney. <laughs> uh, yes, there was a riot at the premiere of Riot of Spring, but that had much to do with the choreography, if not more than the, as the music, because nobody could hear the music anyway. People right, because they were shouting, yeah. Um, a year later, the riot was played in Paris, and Stravinsky was ridden through the streets of Paris on the shoulders of a cheering crowd. And that's never told. I didn't know that. No. And two, you know, Beethoven's Eroica, one of the great revolutionary works in history also, was met with incomprehension, certainly. But I think two years later, the leading music magazine in Europe said this is the greatest symphony ever written. So, I mean, that, that idea that, that radical stuff takes a long time to sink in is, is just nonsense. And in fact, Beethoven fans, it's exactly his revolutionary, his scary, his romantic qualities that they most liked. The wilder he was, the better they liked it. Well, here's another question for you, thinking about your four guys. Um, do you know, uh, what's your name, Doris Goodwin Kearns? The Kearns American Goodwin, yeah. Kearns Goodwin, yeah, yeah, I always get that mixed up. She, she always talks <laughs> about... like me. Yeah, she always, she always talks about the presidents that she's written about, she calls them my guys. So, um, so your guys, your four guys, if you think of Ives and Beethoven, uh, Beethoven was, was doing the Age of Enlightenment and Ives' transcendentalism. If they had a chance well, to talk he about was it. Not, Ives' transcendentalism was kind of old-fashioned, actually. Transcendentalism is 19th century. But his association with Emerson and... Yeah. What Ives really was was a progressive of that, of early 20th century progressive. Uh, you know, in the vein of Theodore Roosevelt and, and people like that. Politically, that's what he was, except he was more radical than most of them. And a certain amount of his radicalism came, in fact, from transcendentalism, from, from Emerson and Thoreau. Um, as a, I talked to Ellie Siegmeister once about Ives, and he said, 
I was a socialist too, but my socialism came from Kropotkin and Emma Goldman, and Ives came from Emerson and Thoreau. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, do you think they would have they would have agreed on a lot of philosophical matters or disagreed? You mean Emerson and Thoreau and Ives? No, uh, Ives and Beethoven. I think they would, because Beethoven was Ives' great hero. Um, he said at one point, Beethoven is probably the greatest thing humanity has produced. I forgot that's about a pretty, that. Uh, that's a pretty good recommendation. <laughs> that's not bad, yeah. And, um, you know, he's, there's a famous statement of his where he appears to be saying he th thinks his music is better than theirs, but it's actually, you have to know how Ives talks. <laughs> As his neighbor said once, it's hard to quote Ives because what he said is not what he meant. And Ives makes that statement. I say that my music is better than any all these great masters, but if a professional musician were to agree with me, I'd know I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And that completes the thought in an Ivesian way. Uh huh. One thing I thought was so interesting for me in reading the book uh, about Brahms was when you started discussing the harmony of of Brahms, and that especially compared to Wagner, because Wagner was thought of talking about being a revolutionary as being really what would you say far out or um, experimental with his harmonies, sort of almost going towards non tonality with uh, Tristan. Yeah. And, and Brahms was thought as, as being conservative, but you mentioned or pointed out that actually a lot of the stuff that he did was really quite far-reaching, but he sort of hid it inside the the music. And, and for example, yeah. the sec I guess you would say the second theme in the first movement of the second symphony, the that it's in D major, except the bass is playing in, in B minor. It's hard, no, I think it's harm, I think it's an A major, and it's it, harmonized in F minor. Oh, is that it? Okay, minor. I okay. think if that's what, that's well, what F, I remember. The, the third symphony is F major and minor at the beginning, where, he, yes. where it's just mixed up. That, that, the first two chords of that piece are just spine-chilling. Oh, it's know, great. F major, yeah. and then the bass jumps to an A flat. Whoa! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, Brahms was... This was not a, these were not original thoughts to me. Well, I mean, one one theorist I read said that Brahms's harmony is centrifugal, and and Wagner's is centripetal, or is it the other way around? I never. He means that Brahms <laughs> makes some remarkable harmonic excursions, and Brahms tends to do amazing things within a phrase harmonically, but he will come back to the tonic. Whereas Wagner just tends to start modulating and going. <laughs> and it goes, okay. But Brahms was also extraordinarily innovative in rhythm, and I, I never found anybody in the 19th century who even noticed that. Um, Brahms would, would move the perceived downbeat all over the bar. I don't know of anybody else who did that before him. Uh, he was riding in what amount to five-beat and seven-beat meters toward the end of his life. He wrote true polyrhythm in a way that nobody had ever done before. I mean, you know, one of the violin sonatas, is it the first? He has the, I think it's in 12-8, and he has about three or four different divisions of that 12-8 meter going at the same time. And... Um, some of these things are so hard to conceive. I don't know how people played them, and yet nobody in the 19th century ever said, hey, you honest, I mean, those your rhythms are pretty wild. Where'd you get that? Do you think Brahms had the feeling that he was doing something far-reaching, or that that's just sort of the way he wrote? I think he, he was a traditionalist. I, I said that Brahms was a pedant who also happened to be a genius. He was very backward-looking, and he was very pedantic by nature, but he also was 
a genius and, a, and had a tremendous imagination. And I think if you had tried to pin him down, he would have said, well, of course, I'm going to add something to the tradition as part of my job to, to find new, as part of my voice and my creativity to find new things too. But the idea of innovation for its own sake would have been absolutely anathema to him. I mean, one, one guy was showing him his stuff, young composers, because he would look at young composers' music. And he said, I tried to do something original, and basically Brahms ripped him to shreds for it. <laughs> uh -huh. And yet, Schoenberg, that's, that's another thing that I had in the background of what I said about Brahms. Schoenberg's famous article, Brahms the Progressive, saying, everybody thinks I get it all from Wagner, but no, I got a lot of it from Brahms, and here is why Brahms is progressive. <laughs> he just... He does the chapter at verse, and it's it's completely real. Of course, Brahms's idea of progressive and Schoenberg's would not have been. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think and so. By progressive, Schoenberg <laughs> meant leading toward me. That's what it means. <laughs> okay. okay, okay. Actually, when I was a student at UCLA, the main hall was called Schoenberg Hall because he taught there, I guess. Oh, for, I know. Yeah, yeah, I know. For quite a while. I can't remember if I've been in. My brother went there to UCLA. And I, really? I can't remember if I was in Schoenberg Hall or not. Hmm. When was he there? What years? Uh, 70s, I guess. So that was there 67 to 69. So I, I just missed him, I guess. He was in, he was in the Army then. <laughs> okay. I was able to avoid it. <laughs> like you. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, here's another hypothetical question for you. Beethoven, as a young man, had one lesson from Mozart, and he had to leave and go back. To, at it least that's really what people think. It wasn't a lesson. It was just sort of an encounter okay. that he played for him. Yeah, okay. Suppose like, and he had to go back to Bonn because his mother was, was very ill. Suppose like his mother had not been ill, and he had stayed to study with Mozart and had become a student of Mozart's. Do you think that would have changed music history at yes. all? Yes. How so? Well, it would have changed him. He mm -hmm. would have been a different composer. He how, probably how? would have been a great composer. Well, he already he ended up being a great composer. Yeah, I mean, he would have probably been just as great a composer, but he would have been different in some ways. That are impossible to say, but he would have been different. Just like, as I say in the book, if Mozart had lived to 71, he would have died the same year of Beethoven. And to imagine those two in Vienna together. Wow. Uh, competing and collaborating and, you know, because Mozart, they would... I mean, Mozart was Beethoven's main man. And uh, Mozart would have understood Beethoven's talent very clearly, just like Haydn did. And um, they wouldn't have necessarily been bitter competitors, but I think Beethoven would have had a much harder time finding his own way if Mozart had still been alive. Because one of Beethoven's great advantages was he really had no competitors as a composer, living competitors, except Haydn. And Haydn was winding down when Beethoven appeared. So he had that advantage, and he could really be who he was without a whole lot. Because the, in his early career, the cudgel that people were using to beat over his head, critics, was Mozart. You know, they were holding up Mozart as what he was not living up to, or he was too weird because he's not like Mozart. And um, if Mozart had been alive, it would have been a kind of... What's the word? A stone attached to Beethoven that he had to drag around, which he had to a little bit anyway, especially early in his career. 
And yet, there would have been other things that opened up if the two of them had been bouncing off each other, bouncing ideas off each other. Mm -hmm. Just the same way that Mozart and Salieri used to sit around and study operas together. And Mozart, Salieri at his best was a very fine opera composer, and Mozart knew that perfectly well, and he studied Salieri's operas. The amazing thing about that time, I mean, this is just astonishing to me, is there was one composer, and I forget his name, I think you said he wrote 94 operas? Paisiello. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, how, how, how could they do that? I mean, <laughs> because, in a way, they were hacks, except Paisiello at his best was also very good. He wrote a, he wrote a Marriage of Figaro, uh, not a, I mean, he wrote a Barber of Seville. It's really quite wonderful and very funny. Yeah, but even if you're a hack, I mean, just the time. Oh, I know. He's the, who knows? And, and Mozart and Paisiello got along very well, by the way. Um, and that's something I don't think, I know Mozart biography I'd ever read brought up the simple idea that his competitors on the opera stage were people like Paisiello, who had written 90-some opera, operas, some of them after Mozart. But and and Salieri had written 30 or 40, so they just, and he wrote maybe four that were commonly done, and they were done all over Europe, and they were popular, but they, he was not as popular as they were, partly just because they, they overwhelmed him. His, his, they were just so much more present on the, on the, there were six, seven, eight of Salieri's operas that were very successful and circulated, and Paisiello may have had even more. And Mozart just didn't. If he'd lived longer, he would have he would have been competitive and to a degree. But one of the reasons that he's greater than Salieri um, is that he was much pickier about librettos than Salieri was. That was another thing that slowed down Mozart's opera opera production because he, you know, at one point he said, "I've read a hundred Italian librettos. I still haven't felt what I like." Uh, there were some interesting things, I think, in some of your books um, that were surprises to me. And one was that I had always thought that the relationship between Salieri and Mozart was just contentious. And they had their problems at times, but at other times, they got along fine. They were basically friends and colleagues by the end. Mo Mozart felt Salieri was doing him dirty early in his Vienna years. And... I had mixed feelings about that because Salieri was never had anything to worry about from Mozart. He was as established as you can get. He was Joseph II's favorite opera composers. He had a lot of work by the time Mozart arrived. Salieri had probably written 15 or 20 operas by then. He was enormously popular. He had nothing to worry about from Mozart. So it was hard for me to imagine that Salieri was organizing clacks against Mozart, which Mozart blamed him for you know, people to, to boo and hiss at performances. This was par for the course in Vienna. I mean, that happened, but most, but we don't really know if Salieri paid these people. I mean, these were professionals who you would pay to go hiss <laughs> somebody else's opera. Can you um, imagine writing that down on your resume? <laughs> <laughs> paid hisser? <laughs> I'd like to see their business card, you know. <laughs> yeah, East. Yeah, exactly. Um, so in other words, I could never do, I, could, I don't think you can tell whether Salieri was really responsible for that, because if he was, it was irrational. He had nothing to worry about from Mozart, um, or, or it just may have been Mozart being paranoid. But again, by the end, they were friends and collaborators, and Salieri came to shortly before Mozart died, and um, uh Ma Magic Flute was turning into a huge hit, and Salieri went with Mozart to see it, and was just, 
And Norma praised it from beginning to end, just raved about it. One other surprise, actually, I had from the Beethoven book was I just, that was, that's the only book I've read on Beethoven, and I just had this impression that Beethoven was a genius, but more than anything else, he just struggled and he struggled and things didn't come naturally to him. And as it turns out, he was a great improviser. And you told a number of stories about his improvising, and, and one was, it was almost like he was in a, in, a, in a showdown or a contest with another composer, and he finally took a theme of that composer and just, you know, blew him oh, off the it stage. Was, with, it and, was even better than that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it was a guy named Steibelt who was a popular virtuoso. He invented the piano tremolo, which was his big effect. And Beethoven went to a concert, and a lot of people were saying, geez, this guy's gonna, this guy's gonna show up Beethoven. And Beethoven, of course, knew that, knew people were saying that Beethoven always knew what was going on. And he went to a concert, and he would have figured out very quickly the guy was a, a, a fraud. Um, and at the people saw Beethoven there and said, Beethoven, you've got to improvise. And he was, um, Czerny, who knew Beethoven, said that Beethoven was at his best improvising often when he was mad, when he was angry, <laughs> Beethoven was furious. So on the way up, they'd had a string quartet at Paisiello played, and Beethoven picked up the cello part from the stand, went up to the piano, turned the music upside down, and picked out some notes, upside down notes at random with one finger, and then improvised on them brilliantly for a half hour. And Charity <laughs> was great. there, and he said that theme was always there. Uh -huh. And he also said at the end of the improvisation, um, Steibelt was gone. He was nowhere to be seen. That's amazing. That's just yeah. great. Wow. Um, well, of the, the four composers you've written about, two were financially secure, Brahms and Ives, and two struggled with money. Do you think that affected um, their work habits at all? Mozart and Beethoven both made a fair amount of money. Mozart had some trouble hanging on to it, um, but he was not nearly as desperate as some of his letters seem to imply. He was not nearly as bad off as tradition has it. Beethoven also made a lot of money, but he, and he was not, he didn't spend on luxuries at all, but he would do things like pay rent on three or four apartments at the same time. He just had no real awareness of money. And, but also Beethoven himself thought that he was in much more trouble than he really was. So he actually didn't do that badly. Okay, okay. But, but Ives and, and Brahms were pretty well off. Yeah. And Brahms, yeah. I, I think you said that Brahms never felt like he had to write for a commission, that he just wrote what he wanted he to write. He never had a commission, which is a really incredible. Yeah. I mean, he was surely offered them, but he, he wouldn't do it. Um, Brahms apparently used to have stacks of uncounted bills sitting in his closet. And, um, you know, Clara Schumann was trying to get him to buy American Railroad stock at one point. I <laughs> just couldn't care less about that okay. kind of thing. I had forgotten um, that part. <laughs> actually, Brahms's publisher took care of his money to a degree, and you know, Brahms would just write him and say, "Send me, send me so much," and he, he would get it. There's one letter Brahms wrote to his publisher, which is absolutely hysterical. He writes it as a as a petitioner. You know, I, I'm I'm staring in the abyss <laughs> unless your saving hands comes to me. 
And now with my last kroners, I'm going to have to go to the Rota Eagle and drink them. <laughs> <laughs> well, he knows how to spend his money. <laughs> now, Brahms is extremely comfortable, but he wasn't extravagant either. I mean, he lived in the same apartment for 20 or 25 years in Vienna, and it was not a fancy apartment. In part two, we continue our conversation about writing, his four biographical subjects, and the importance of a built-in crap detector. She 